Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Huntivore Podcast, powered by Sportsman's Empire, where we celebrate the hunting and fishing lifestyle through the utilization and consumption of our wild game. No egos. Fork in hand, beer in the other. No status. A piece of red meat on a hot grill and turn it into a burnt offering. Just catch it, cut it, cook it. This is episode 109, Foraging Delicious with Alan Burgo. On this episode of Huntivore, Nick is joined by forager, chef, and writer Alan Burgo. Alan has honed his craft of foraging plants, mushrooms, roots, and even everyday garden vegetable plants to bring added flavors, textures, and excitement that only wild edibles can. Alan was recently on the show Chef vs. Wild, where culinary experts make beautiful dishes out of the forage that they find. Together, the two unpack foraging for novices, dive into some specific plants that hold hidden flavor, break down the process of creating a mushroom and wild game chowder, and learn some culinary techniques for creamy soups, and of course, taking the sting out of nettles. Get ready for an information-packed episode of Huntivore. Well, hey folks, beautiful evening here in Michigan. I tell you what, we have the ups and downs going on. We've got the really warm days, and we're starting to get the chilly nights. Uh, Really setting up for some deer activity, really watching deer Unfortunately, uh, this week has been only watching deer from the roads and uh, from the from the porch, which has been nice. Uh, but I haven't been the stand very much yet. But that's neither here nor there. Tonight we are going to kind of put we're going to put the pursuing the fauna aside, and we're going to be worrying about the flora. We're going to be looking for the foraging aspect. Uh, I went ahead and I got a hold of. Alan Burgo. He is a chef. He is a master forager. He's a writer and he is a self-proclaimed I'm not making this up. This dude calls himself the Indiana Jones meets Anthony Bourdain and I think to make that call you got to have some brassy balls and this dude can back it up so he can shine those brassy balls. Alan, thank you so much for coming on tonight. Where, uh, Where are you joining us in from? Well, I'm coming from Menominee, and thanks for introducing me with my balls. <laughs> you, you betcha. Keeping things light uh, as we go along here. So all the way to Menominee, uh, northern Wisconsin? Yes. Gotcha. Is that home for you, or is that uh, where you just kind of ended up? Uh, it's home for now. I'm thinking I'm going to move back to the Twin Cities. I was in the Twin Cities. Uh, I worked in restaurants for like 15 years. And long story, I came out here and I'm moving back next year. But yeah, I have a house I bought as an office that I kind of turned into mad scientist lab. Uh, the garage is almost a giant kitchen. Uh, I need a sink and a couple other things, but yeah, it, it works for now. Hey, if you can have multiple kitchens or just turn the whole house into a kitchen, I don't see anything wrong with that. I think that's the perfect setup, especially for a gentleman like yourself. Um, I guess let's just get to the the bear in the room. Let's unpack your recent venture on the television show, or I should say on the streaming show through Hulu, Chef versus Wild. Uh, listeners, if you haven't tuned into this show yet, it is probably going to be one of your favorites. It's like Survivor meets Chopped and smashes it together where they're taking these renowned chefs and pairing them with survivalists they're spending time outside, foraging for food, finding items to end up making these world-class dishes. And Alan was on episode two of the first season. Uh, elk ribs was his given, and they were in British Columbia. 
Alan, tell me about the experience of being an island and having no idea what you were going to pair with uh, these elk ribs. Well, I mean, you know, you got to keep in mind that the production company wants to see food on the plate, so they're going to try to hedge their bet a little bit. Uh, that being said, most of the people doing this were like from the survival aspect, the survival uh, shows, right? And that skill set does not necessarily overlap with the foraging and wild food skill set. So I was a little bit skeptical and uh, it, for good reason. But what was what was difficult was being out there in a terrain that I've never been. You know, I have a couple of hints that people give me like, oh, you know, you'll probably find huckleberries. They were everywhere, uh, you know, but it was it's like an old growth coniferous forest and a temperate rainforest. Uh, there's there was not a lot of food to be found and it was raining all the time. We actually had a couple days with no rain, which is incredible. Uh, like the first episode, I know the people got caught in a crazy storm. It knocked the power out of the hotel um, when we were there because we had to quarantine for like a week before. Oh my gosh! Um, oh, oh yeah, it was it was intense. Like you you go through all kinds of stuff beforehand. The casting process was, I don't know, like three quarters of a year, like it, like seven months. It, it was really intense. Wow! Wow! And so now, yeah, you're thrown into an environment, shoot, I mean, we can get wet here in the Great Lakes, but at the same time, it's nothing compared to what's out there. And so you're trying to find things that don't normally grow in your area. Like, you've got great experience with these items uh, in the kitchen, but that brought a whole new dynamic now, especially where you now would have to search out for these items. Was that a big learning curve? Were there, was there a huge study session that you had to do to prepare yourself for that? Or was it one of those where that's where really the survivalist uh, came in and kind of gave you some instruction? No, you know, my survivalist was a great guy. He was like from Kyrgyzstan and ex-Russian military, but he lived in Ontario. So he talked like Borat, but every sentence ended in A. <laughs> uh, just for reference, he's awesome. I love you, Baja. If, you're, if you ever listen to this, uh, he didn't know he didn't have a lot of wild food experience. I mean, he had some, but I basically was out there looking for things and planning what I was going to cook. And you know, I really, I was, I did a lot of studying. I watched every episode of Alone that was filmed in British Columbia before I left. I had about a month where I knew I knew more details. Like they keep me in the dark for a long time, like almost the whole time through the casting process. When I found out it was made by the people that did Alone, then I started doing all my research. Started researching. We knew it was in British Columbia on the Sunshine Coast, so I bought field guides. I'm you know reaching out to my network. To my network, I can go just about anywhere in the world and find somebody on social media go out and pick something, find something off the ground and eat it, you, you know, damn near. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking to people out there trying to figure out what, you know, what I can get during the season, but I'm really, I was really not looking for plants that I had not worked with. I was looking for plants that I had worked with because that's what I have experienced. I look for some things that I didn't, uh, that I hadn't worked with too, but not as much as stuff like, you know, herbaceous plants like leafy green plants and mushrooms that I that I knew and have worked with a, a lot. Uh, how I did that, you know, in this old growth forest, this in this coniferous forest, it's like all alder and cedar. There was like, it was like a sea of ferns. There was like nothing. There was like a couple <laughs> mushrooms maybe here and there, but there was like nothing, like no light can get through. What I needed was disturbance, okay? I needed or a boundary where two areas meet. And I mean, I touch on that like a little bit during the show, like one sentence, it's edited down so much. It's just insane. Right, like, right. Beep, bop, beep, bop in the woods. Okay, now cook. No, it was like, it was a freaking crucible, man. Like I'm all dehydrated, constipated, worse, so bad. I th like I thought I was going to harm myself from eating only raw oysters. Oh my like, goodness. It was, yeah, it was, it was nuts. But I ended up finding like on the second day, a, like a construction dump next to our camp, like, I don't know, it, it was a little hike to get there, uh, just when I was out exploring, because you have some time after the, after the camera crew leaves, like right before it starts to, the, it starts to get dark, we'd have a, like an hour or two of free time, and free time meaning we're chopping logs, like the devil's whip is behind us, because it's going to be cold, 
and the, the water is frozen in the ground when you wake up. Uh, but I found this construction dump and I'm like, boom, this is something, a piece of the landscape that's different. And maybe there's some sun getting in. So like I can break this like stasis of a sea of ferns that were, were sleeping in that seemed like most of the forest was composed of. And boom, I get there. Most of it is foxglove, uh, this type of, type of foxglove that uh, was poisonous there uh, or toxic. You're not supposed to eat it. I wasn't familiar with it, but I found nettles. And then I found these giant, juicy fall thistle roots. I found the, I just saw these big basil rosettes and I was like, oh my God, I'm, there's a thistle root under there. I don't know if it tastes good, but I'm sure as hell going to try. So that was where I got probably two of the most important ingredients. The thistle roots were really important because they were freaking delicious. Oh man. I took them and kind of scrubbed them and then just boiled them. Uh, we had to boil all our water. All we had was one pot. So like testing stuff outside was like, you have to know what you're going to make and be able to make it with your eyes closed and not have to test things if you want to win, right? Exactly. So like I'm watching some of these next episodes and I'm seeing people go in like, I'm like, these guys are going in cold or they're like switching up what they're going to make like during the competition. Like this, you're not going to win like that. Uh, yeah. I mean, that. I mean, that's not how I'm going to operate personally. Like I'm a mercenary, you know, like I, I have all my recipes that may have proportions or are in the baking world. Everything was memorized with like individual mnemonics and acronyms before I went out there because they tear all the pages out of your notebook. Uh, oh, so man. I found, yeah, I found Brutal. the thistle roots and the nettles. I ended up drinking the thistle root cooking liquid and it was the strongest diuretic that I've ever consumed. Like throughout <laughs> the entire, yeah, I was like, I'm not throwing this water away because we got to boil this water. And holy shit, man, I am peeing. Like it's like, like aggressive peeing. Like every 15 minutes, like throughout the whole night, it was like, it was really intense, but they tasted really good. Just don't drink the water. They kind of taste like, and you want to get these in the spring or the fall when the plant is not putting its energy into the, uh, like green above ground portions of the plant. So it's energies in the root. Otherwise they're going to be like hollow or like soft. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they're kind of like a carrot crossed with an artichoke and they're freaking delicious. And I cooked them in duck fat and they were awesome. But That's yeah, it, it was tough. It was tough to find stuff. Um, so you've got, you, you, you have to go to a boundary, like at the shore, the shore is another boundary. That's where we found all the oysters and the huckleberries or find some kind of disturbance, you know? So that's, that's what I did. I just, I played to my strengths. I did what I know. Beautiful. And it played out. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know what? No, I'm not going to blow it. I'm not going to tell anybody that you either won or you lost. I'm going to have folks go and watch the episode because I was entertained all the way through. Uh, seeing that, like, as as we're talking here, like, you stick into that game plan and not wavering from that. Because, like you said, if, if you start changing stuff up, man, you're you're left with a moment where shoot, I changed stuff up. I don't know proportions. I don't know what I'm doing quite yet. And that's where everything begins to fall apart. Um, in there, they, again, they dumb everything down, but you, you made several references to uh, samurai, like an ancient Japanese warrior. And really kind of like what you said, I'm going to stick to this code. I'm going to stick to what I've put together, and that is going to see you on the way to victory. So excellent job on that show, Alan, both uh, – um, just in your performance, but at the same time, like watching the whole production go on, I think it was a really, it, it's one of my new favorite shows because it's one of those things I can sit down and, you know, dream about, Hey, this is what I'm going to make when, when I'm out in the wilderness. And it, uh, yeah, it's a really fun show to watch. Yeah, it was definitely a time. It was, it was wild. They cut the part where the mountain lion stalks our camp at night. Uh, I don't know why they cut that part out. And then there was. Yeah, they, they, the security team actually caught him on camera. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, not only are you foraging and you're trying to get all this stuff, you're trying to stay warm, but here you have this predator trying to then play this double game. <laughs> it really was chefs versus wild. Oh, yeah, and it's like, you know, you sign so many legal documents with stuff like this, like anything could happen to you, you know, it kind of, kind of just want to catch it on camera uh 
like they they won't be liable for anything like any sort of show like this so it's like it, it is what they described there is absolutely real but they really they in the edits you know they kind of gloss over the survival portion of it and the survival portion of it was really really difficult and then to have to cook at the end of that after like not have yeah the food was scarce i ate raw oysters that i shucked with a k-bar because it snapped, it broke my Benchmade knife to snap the tip off. These things oh were as goodness. big as hamburger buns, man. And I ate raw oysters every morning until I was completely filled. Okay, like not, I'm not like eating two. Yeah, you just. I, I love them raw down. oysters. And I, oh, I was just horking them down, and they, they, there's like no footage of that. But I ate them until I was completely sated, like every morning. You know, I wasn't gonna, gonna starve, but it was the you get so dehydrated from all that salt. But we're also like sawing logs the whole time. It was like a part-time job and you're burning the softwood. So the softwood doesn't make coals. And we would just have to take like these eight foot long alder logs and push them in the fire, like a, you know, like a Pez dispenser or something slowly. And we slept in shifts. You know, it's like you sleep an hour, I sleep an hour the whole time before we're going to cook and other teams let their fire go out. So, you know, that was, that was definitely a learning, learning curve right there is we shouldn't have kept the fire going, but what are you going to do? Exactly. Well, shoot. Does that resonate with uh, the restaurant life as well? Living in shifts, working your tail end off all hours of the day, just feeling totally physically exhausted. Cause in your, in your professional life, like you said, for about 15 years, you were working in some very upscale kitchens. Um, tell us a little bit about the restaurant life um, both in, Hey, what were the, what were the things that made it fulfilling? But then at the same time, what, what made you make the life shift to getting out of the professional kitchen and into really studying food? Well, I didn't start in nice kitchens. I started at McDonald's and then I grew up working with drug addicts and convicts for like many years. Then I got to the twin cities, um, and I got, I got my first break working for the chef that owned his own restaurant in Rome um, that was in the Twin Cities. And he owned his own restaurant for like 10 years. I was there for like two and a half years, worked with a whole bunch of Italian guys, kind of did that. And then I worked with some French guys and farm to table food. Uh, but the lifestyle was really, really difficult. You know, it's like I sacrificed everything social stuff, your family, friends, women run for the hills, it, you know, it's very difficult. And when you get into the really nice places, you will get paid less and you will work more. Right. And, and like going corporate, if you're not an independent restaurant is seen as like going out to pasture, like you might as well be retired. It doesn't matter if you're 25, you're done. You know, you go to, you go to a country club or something like that. I, I mean, I was supposed to punch in at two. Sometimes I'd show up at 10, 11, um, working at this restaurant called Heartland where the menu changed every single day. Uh, I helped write the menu with the other line cooks. We, were, we each wrote the menu for our station and we only used ingredients from within 200 miles of Minnesota. Right? Holy so smokes, like, what a criteria. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's like, like the creativity, that is part of what made me who I am, being able to walk into any kitchen take a look at what's on the shelves, craft a new menu from it in my head without cooking it, and then execute it and have it be awesome, right? It's like Green Beret. Like, there's not a lot of restaurants that, that do stuff like that, but it comes to the sacrifice. Um, what I really loved about it, I, I love making people happy. I love the creativity. You know, cooking is just, it is all I've ever known. I cook when I'm happy, when I'm sad, it, you know, like every single emotion, whatever, what I do to like heal or feel good. I just, I cook, you know, it's, it's, I'm a one trick pony. <laughs> so man, again, ups and downs, starting at a McDonald's working with folks who were just rough and tumble and then working yourself up into these, these kitchens where, yeah, like you said, week to week, day to day, the, the menu is going to change and you got to be on your toes the whole time. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm blown away at that. Like I, I get a recipe and it feels like it takes me, Oh, 
two or three times to like get it down. You know, like okay, this is this is where we're going for because I'm you know adding this or I'm taking away this, adding five more minutes here, taking away five minutes there. But man, to come out and just try to execute that from memory of this is how I I know this ingredient and this is how I know things uh, work. Tons of pressure. Tons of pressure. Yeah, and it's it's a lot of pressure. And eventually, like I started running my own spots, um, and I every single restaurant I've ever worked at is closed, right? So after my the second restaurant where I was executive chef, it was this really really well known farm to table restaurant called Lucia's. After that closed, like the closing was really hard on me. Like I was like. I was depressed. I was beat up, like physically, mentally, like PTSD. And nothing in my life had ever made me like lose my fire for cooking. But that did. And I was like, what's wrong with me? And I kind of just went and licked my wounds for a couple of years. I started writing a manuscript and I sold a book series. When the pandemic hit, I started filming my show that's out on Apple TV that won the James Beard Award this year. It's called Field Forest Feast. Uh, we started doing that and I started doing a bunch of different jobs. And before I knew it, I was like, I'm never going back. I don't have to go back. And I kind of like dreamed up a life where I took the best parts of, I took what I could and what I liked, some things I liked from the culinary industry. And I mixed it with being outside hunting plants and mushrooms, like people will hunt a trophy buck, right? Like in my mind, there's like very little difference. And that's where you, you get the Anthony Bourdain slash Indiana Jones from is because it's, I, I'm outside and I'm outside a lot and everything's very physical. I mean, I got paralyzed from Lyme disease, uh, the, the Bell's palsy from that. Thankfully, I never got bit by the Lone Star ticks, but yeah, there, there's a big element of excitement to it and a little bit of danger. And I'm kind of living my dream now and I wouldn't, I wouldn't have it any other way. I would have, I could have never imagined that, you know, today I'll just, then I, and the next day I'll just wake up and kind of do whatever I want. Uh, it's really strange. And what an amazing thing that you see where you want things to go. You've been through a lot and you dreamed up, like, just like you said, you dreamed up what you wanted your profession to be. And are you finding that, is it, is it the, the seeking out the, the new pairings, the new, the new flavors? Is it, is it working with these new elements that gets you excited? Or is it the sharing of like helping others and teaching others? Like, listen, when you come into these areas where two environments meet and you have this, this abscess or this clearing that you're going to be able to find things and then helping others to do that, or just to understand what, what you, your passions are, or is it more along the idea of like, you're out there venturing it's you've got the PhD in the, in the plant world. And now you're just continuing to strive for that, that next big find. Well, I want to be very clear that I do not have a PhD in anything. That's and, I include, <laughs> and I include cooking in that. Uh, but, you know, I mean, to be totally honest, like I'm selfish. Uh, I new ingredients are like catnip to chefs, right? But I want to taste a new thing. I want to do everything I can with it. I want to taste something that I've never cooked before. That is the eternal challenge. That is the part of foraging that's like, I can never master that. It, it is like a, a continual challenge. There is always something new. I will never, you know, in multiple lifetimes, would I be able to, you know, work with, work with the, like the whole variety of things that's available, even just in my area. It's just like a staggering amount of possibility. It's like anxiety producing for me sometimes, but I want to, I want to taste everything. Uh, and sharing that with people is fantastic. Uh, and I get to, one thing I really like is that I get to, I get to interact with a lot more people now than I did when I had restaurants, when I was running restaurants, you know, maybe a thousand people or something would come in on a busy week, which is not that much at all. And now it's many, many more times that, uh, the amount of people I get to reach on 
on just a week, a weekly basis is really cool. And I get to teach them, help teach them something. And in turn, that can help like make them appreciate where they live more. Like one of my things I want to be known for, I would like to be known for is like the Midwest, you know, boy that did good and help people see that the Midwest is not a bunch of flyover states. Like we have world-class ingredients here, just like so many other places in the world. We have world-class talent here and it's awesome. You know? Amen. Amen. As a great Laker, I am going to encourage you to, yeah, bolster that Midwest charm that we have. We have an amazing area and I'm, I'm just one that, you know, I'm, I'm a novice still, but yeah, I'm just kind of opening up Pandora's box and I'm beginning to see a little bit of what you're talking about. We're, we're blessed. I would say even coast to coast, we are blessed with what we have available uh, to us that we just have to go and find. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about your new book that's come out. Is this uh, is this just put together of your field notes, or are you telling us a lot more in your, your new book, Flora? So Flora is basically the vegetal portion of my life. Uh, when I was first writing the manuscript, I was going to, you know, just basically like take take some recipes from the restaurants and stuff like that and put some together. And uh, as I started putting things together, I'm like, man, this is going to be huge. This is like way too broad. So what I decided to do is to split that very, very large book into three different books. And two of them are still in process and very much down the line, uh, which will be fungi and fauna. But flora is like, the vegetable portion stuff, wild plants, wild green plants, herbs, also different vegetables from the garden, specifically ones where I might have some interesting ways to cook them or some notes on like, Hey, with squash, uh, like zucchini, you can eat the, the leaves, you can eat the shoots. Um, you know, you can eat them at different stages. There's different things you can do with them at different sizes, you know, different things like that. Cooking with sunflowers. Um, so it's kind of like the vegetable portion and the garden, uh, of, of how, of how I cook, if it, if that makes any sense. And then the second book, fungi is going to be all on wild mushrooms. And the third book will be all on meat, small game, nose to tail cooking, stuff like that. Oh man, man, stay tuned folks. Cause yeah, if we're getting knowledge off off of you just in this conversation, like now to like dive into your brain and be able to talk about shoot, even different stages of zucchini. You're just making that an example right there. It's not just going to be zucchini bread, zucchini boats, grilled zucchini, zucchini spaghetti. It's we're going to be able to not get away from the fruit as well from that. And then use the actual plant, the leaves as well. That's it. That's very exciting. And a note to your creativity too gardeners in in our area they they want to use as much as possible they don't want to let anything go to waste and to be able to highlight something where you're using the stalk the leaf that has got to be a a great way to get more use out of a single plant yeah it helps people kind of like appreciate some plants that that they may already know like with like with zucchini so it's a perfect example i'd worked with just about like every heirloom squash that i could order and I had never seen a squash plant growing in a garden, you know, even after all the years in the kitchen, because you're behind the stove so much. And the first time I saw a squash plant, I didn't know what it was. I thought maybe it was a wild plant because it was right on the, like the peripheries of the garden. It did kind of escaped. And I didn't see, there was no fruit or anything. It's just these big leaves. And I saw this delicious looking shoot crawling on the ground. And the end of it just looked like this little fairy tale vegetable. And my mouth started to water. And I was like, oh my God. I don't know what I don't know what this is. I was getting excited, but I don't know what this plant is, but it looks delicious. So I cut all these shoots and I bring them back. And later I they're delicious. And later I find out they, you know, obviously I'm not the first person to think they look good. They cook them in Mexico and they cook them in Nepal. Um, it's and they're really, really good. But that was my wild food training. Okay, that was my foraging instinct, teaching me something new about a garden plant, right? So that's why I write about some of the garden plants in my book is kind of like lessons that foraging taught me about vegetables that I already know. 
When in the field, accuracy and precision count. That's why we switch our slug guns to rifle barrels, tune our arrows, and use a fish finder on the water. But why should our drive for control end there? The Tappacue line of meat probes gives an instantaneous look at the temperatures of our prized meals, both internal and the cooking chamber. Tappacue uses sturdy hardware made and assembled here in the U.S., along with their user-friendly, sophisticated software that connects to your smart device. Whether it's a traditional corded probe or the new cordless air probes that give you a wealth of freedom where wires would just get in the way. Adding a Tappacue meat probe can significantly help in getting to that medium rare on venison or waterfowl, ensuring your upland bird stays moist, or even charting your long cooks on a smoker. Visit tappacue.com or find the link in the show notes and use the code HUNT10, all uppercase, at checkout to save 10%. Adding a probe to your kit can make you one tap away from your cue. All right, Alan, with your expertise in foraging and all the avenues that you've gone through, one that really has caught my interest, uh, both seeing it um, for myself, used by other people, but then recently with you uh, on the the show, um, was using stinging nettles. I have a history with stinging nettles, Um, not in a very glorious sense of enjoying them as a food item, but more or less falling prey to their stinging. Um, I have (laughs) vivid memory as a kid being in shorts and a tank top and ending up in a thicket of them and feeling like I was never going to get out and just continued to burn. But using this plant is is something that, I mean, you can go several different avenues when it comes to preparing nettles. Talk to me how this, like, bane of my existence can end up being such an amazing addition to someone's plate. So nettles are one of my favorite wild plants, and they're one of the most widely harvested wild plants around the world, one of the most heavily consumed ones. And yeah, they sting you. That is like the plant's way of defending itself. But it also means that for whatever reason, you know, nettles taste really good. They're really mild. They don't have like really crazy strong flavors because they're, I like to think because they're putting their energy into a different defense mechanism where other plants will have a strong taste as a kind of deterrent. Uh, so, you know, nettles, first of all, just taste really, really good. And they're traditional food that's super healthy for you. And they sting you because they have trichomes, which are basically the stingers are made of glass and they're filled with formic acid. That's like a bee sting. And to make nettles edible, you need to do away with all the stingers. And there's a bunch of different ways that people around the world do that and that you can do easily at home. So you can crush them, cook them, or dry them. All of these things will break the trichome and make them easy to eat. So you can just put them in a pan after you clean them and cook them with a little bit of water and a knob of butter and some salt and just cook them right up and they'll be totally fine. Or you can blanch them or you can make soup or in Turkey, they actually have a salad where they take nettles and crush them with a rolling pin and chop them up and mix them with tomato and feta cheese and olive oil and lemon. It's really, really good. Uh, and they eat them raw. So there's all kinds of different ways that you can use them. Uh, and they're really, really delicious. Nettle soup, uh, creamy, it's a creamy soup, pureed with potatoes, topped with sour cream. It's probably one of my favorites. Gotcha, gotcha. I am, yes, like it, in my mind, I'm like the hair on the back of my neck is standing up, thinking about a fresh salad with nettles. But going through the process of a, a simple rolling pin and crushing those. I'm sure that's one of those processes. You're going over them multiple times just to make sure you get every trichome. I couldn't imagine one. one oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, I have like, I have a, I have a bunch of images online that demonstrate that uh, because, and, and I really need to add to, that's not the thing you want to make is your first time trying nettles. You need to cook, <laughs> make sure to cook them first. 
uh, like I look at like historical stuff and really and, like traditional foods are one of the great ways to find ways to cook with wild foods because because they were still cooking with wild plants at that time, uh, you know. Um, so going in with even the like I, I just really need to to wilt the plant this time or if, like like you said like get them in the pan a little bit of water and I'm wilting those down a little bit of butter it doesn't take a whole. Them. Or steaming, steaming steaming them okay this is the way you have to try it first okay. steaming them is super good i there's uh they do it in turkey and but you can do this with all kinds of fresh green plants so you just put them in a steamer basket you know you get your nettles they're like you know four three four inches tall preferably or just nettle tops that you can harvest like almost at the beginning of summer just from the top of the plant where it's tender and you put them in a steamer basket and you steam them for about five minutes. It's just about perfect. Then you take those out, you put them on a plate, you put a little bit of butter on them, a little soft butter, and you sprinkle them with salt. If you have some crunchy salt, like crunchy sea salt, uh, like falk or maldon on top, that's just crazy delicious. A little bit of fresh lemon juice. I have a Turkish recipe that you steam them and then mix them with cheese, like soft cheese. Oh, it's so good. This is getting me so excited for, yeah, right around that, like, early June when I see those things start popping up rather than, like, get nervous and be like, well, can't go here anymore. Like, now I'm going to be seeking these spots out and nipping the top of that. That's going to be that's gonna be a very fun harvest. Yeah, um, they're also, they're oh, also okay. like, a luxury ingredient, too. Like, I will... It's nothing to pay eleven, twelve dollars a pound for nettles. Just another thing to keep in mind. Oh my goodness! Well, shoot, this might be a little, uh, little pocket money that I'm growing out the back. Then I'll have to find just the right chef who is looking for it here in Michigan. The poster child of, uh, of these uh, wild edibles that we're foraging for has got to be the mushroom. That is one that is so sought after, but even when you talk to groups of people, still holds some of the greatest mystery. Um, it's it's one of those things. Maybe it's just over here, but I feel like there's a uh, a nervousness around mushrooms. Like, oh man, if you don't know what it is, it's it's going to kill you. How did you how did you get past a lot of that mystery? Where did you find uh, your information on identifying mushrooms and how long is it taking you to really feel comfortable just to go out and, and find the ones that you're really strong and keying out? So <clears throat> I learned mushrooms really kind of like on the job first. And it's kind of like just getting taught wild mushrooms while I was working. Uh, they would come into the restaurant and I would see all the ones that would come in locally through through the year and be able to cook them, touch them, feel them, taste them, smell them, you know, see different variations of them, older ones, younger ones. Uh, that's like a really good experience. You know, so then I started going out and hiking and I would play disc golf. And one day I saw a chicken in the woods growing. And I was like, oh. It's like a light went on. Then I just started studying all the different mushroom books that I could. I bought myself like every piece of mushroom literature I could and I read. Uh, now there's there's a bunch of different ways that you can learn mushrooms. I like to I like to compare it to like a like a suite of tools, you know, like how Photoshop is like a bunch of different tools. It's like a tool kit. So field guides are good getting to go out with someone in the field to show you what you're looking for. Like there's all kinds of foraging groups on Facebook for just about every state in the United States. If you ask on one of those groups, Hey, is there someone that does forays around here? You can probably find someone going out with someone in person is the best way to learn. Um, but I combine it with a bunch of other things, reading, just going out and hiking by myself, joining a facebook group or something like that like i was i was hunting mushrooms before facebook groups and it was like 
there was not a lot of info. Now there's Facebook groups all over the place you can join and just you don't even have to post anything but you'll see people posting what they're picking in your area and the apps and the ids those are not i don't really think those are good for mushrooms right now they have a decent success rate with plants and the stuff keeps getting better and better but i don't use it for mushrooms um not really. quite there yet huh <laughs> yeah and then joining your local mycological society is really a good idea too that's another one of those tools in the kit. Excellent. I love how you refer to it as like, it's not just one do it all tool, but it is several different things, both the experience with a particular mushroom. Like as you, just as you mentioned, you had a, you have a friend who, who picks mushrooms. Well, let you study them, let you look at them. Like as you get a chance to cook with them, use them, you see what their stem looks like you get to see what kind of filaments do they have gills underneath do they have pores underneath what's the coloring how does it react when you cut it that's an awesome way to get a chance to look at that mushroom but then when you get to the field hey i've seen that before that looks like something that we used in xyz dish then when you go to look at it then you can really take it you've, you've got memory of that i love how you've added all of those different layers to it so it's not a You've taken unveiled, you've untaken the mystery off of at least several types of mushrooms. Um, yeah, that's that's something that I really, really am taking away from this right now. Great. I also enjoy that you are also finding mushrooms while disc golfing. That's That was this past year. I, I made one really big throw. I thought I was going to I thought I was going to try and impress my wife. At least that was the goal. How far can I throw this disc? And yes, I totally sent that grip lock that thing and it went off way into the rough. And I was able to find my own set after having to go find the disc. I found my own little patch of morel mushrooms and I'll never forget where that spot is. Like yes, I did put it on the phone GPS, but Man, oh man, was I so excited when I came upon that. And sounds like the same way that, that you have. You, you take a bad rip or you throw past the basket, and here sits a big chicken of the mushrooms. That's just a, a great way, I think, to get out uh, into some great mushroom country. Disc golf courses are really that uh, they're that in-between. between. Uh, they have openings. At the same time, they've got a lot of, a lot of shade, a lot of cover. So I think it's a real good spot to do mushrooming. Maybe we don't want to talk too much about our uh, our little little secret here, Alan. That might get too many people picking up on our sport. Yeah. <laughs> so through that, I did through that disc golf. I did end up finding um, golden oysters, which I got went ahead and dehydrated. Um, I ended up also. I actually found them out in the in the freezer this past week. Um, I ended up searing some off. Um, just trying to get some of the water out of them and then ended up freezing them. Somebody told me that that was an also a good way to preserve them. So I have some that are just quick seared and then thrown into a freezer bag. And then I've also got some dehydrated uh, golden oysters. And then I went ahead and found some chicken and the mushrooms, very similar to, to how you found yours. And I ended up dehydrating all of those. One of the things that I was getting really excited to as far as temperatures were going down here is to do a mushroom chowder that really got me thinking like fall this is really something that i think would be fun to to do for to friends and family that i'm trying to you know just kind of give them the experience of uh of mushrooms in a way that i think they'll they'll enjoy them it's not so much in your face here's a mushroom um but yeah my plan was to, to use those golden oysters and the chicken of the woods in a mushroom chowder is that a good direction or should i be looking at a couple of different mushrooms here well what you what you have will make a great chowder uh, but you you got to look at the two mushrooms differently so polypores chicken of the woods is a polypore um, oyster mushrooms are not when you dry and or dehydrate uh, a lot of polypores they get to be just like inedibly tough right so the chicken of the woods is probably going to be like the stock you can add it to a, a stock that you'd make you make a mushroom stock or the dried chicken of the woods and 
then you can take the oyster mushrooms and rehydrate them in a little bit of water and then chop them into kind of bite-sized pieces. And you can cook those directly into your chowder. But the chicken of the woods will get discarded after you make the, the stock. Then what I like to do is cook a, cook a little carrot, onion, and celery. Or just onion and celery and leek if I, if I want it all white. And add all that stock that you made and the, the oyster mushrooms and potatoes. Cook it and bring it to a simmer. And then sometimes instead of roux or adding flour, I'll just add kneaded roux. So to do that, you take butter and flour in equal proportions and knead them together in, to make a little bit of dough. And then you just pinch off pieces and you'll whisk it into the, the hot soup and it'll thicken it just like a roux. Then when it thickens, I add some cream you want to add like a couple cloves of garlic with the vegetables, a good pinch of dried thyme, uh, maybe a bay leaf or half a bay leaf. Man, these yeah, layers. Mushrooms make a great chowder. Yeah, and then left leftover cooked meat, like a little chicken, uh, or just make it with chicken stock. You know. Excellent, excellent. I really like the kneaded roux idea. That's something I've not heard before. What's the what's the benefit of doing the kneaded roux versus a normal roux where I'm cooking that at the bottom of the pan first? Uh, well, well, you can kind of add it later. So sometimes there's like, you never know, hey, I'm just cooking off the hip here and I want to make some chowder, but I maybe don't have enough for this recipe. You can add the, the flour and the kneaded roux just kind of like at the end instead of guesstimating with flour at the beginning. And you can just add it until it starts to get thick when you're whisking it. I like the idea of like, I get a chance to have a little bit more control. <laughs> As when I'm making a dish, sometimes I feel like maybe there's too much on the hip, like things start to get outside of my control. And then that's where I feel like I make mistakes. But having that ability to get the right thickness there at the end, I feel like that's a that's a true win for for a home cook at this point. Really, like you know, I haven't made a made a ton of roux practice. You know, making roux right off the top of my head, like making a gravy. I mean, I can make a gravy, but at the same time, my consistency is definitely off. I get some that are super thick, and then I get some that are quite thin. But to be able to just add a little bit here, add a little bit there, get it to the point where, all right, this is where I need it. I think that's going to be super helpful for someone who, uh, yeah, is cooking for, for family out of, the home, out of the home. Yeah, and making gravy is actually what it's probably the best for. You, so you, can, you, even... just pin, you can pinch off pieces like the size of a walnut at a time and just whisk them into the pan. And because the flour is all, all coated with the fat from the butter, it won't, uh, it's not going to clump and you just whisk it right in and it'll thicken. Awesome. I mean, you know, a, a clumpy, a clumpy gravy is kind of tough to get your arms around of. So making sure you get a nice smooth one using the kneaded roux technique. I like it. I like it a lot. What else could I add in as far as, and we've, we've talked about those specific mushrooms of, of the golden oysters or um, the chicken of the woods, which that's what we're making our stock of. If it was probably fresh, we're looking at something different. We could probably actually leave uh, the actual mushroom in, but because I've got it dehydrated, I'm using it as a, as a stock base. Um, are there any store-bought or easy accessible uh, mushrooms that would be good for adding into a chowder? Is it kind of open to what mushrooms I want to use, or is there going to be a few that really kind of take the cake when it comes to making, making a thick soup? Oh, shiitakes. Fresh, fresh shiitakes are like, fan, they're fantastic. And a lot of my friends will like not eat cultivated mushrooms, you know, throw mushroom snobs. Uh, but <laughs> fresh, but shiitake mushrooms, 
And I mean, I and I am too. You like absolutely. But fresh shiitake mushrooms are fantastic, and they're probably I think the best flavor that you can get in a cultivated mushroom. Um, so if I have my choice, I'm gonna add a bunch of shiitakes cut into bite-sized pieces. So maybe quarters, maybe you know half caps, depending on how big they are. Uh, you got to make sure to discard the stems, and you can add those stems to your mushroom broth with the chicken in the woods if you want. Uh, but shiitakes are always going to make what I think is the best, like the best really anything from a cultivated mushroom. Awesome. That's a great tip, too, that, yeah, we've got folks that are still, they're not quite there, or maybe they didn't, they weren't blessed with a bounty. If they can get their hands on some shiitakes, at least they can at least have their starter dish, get their hand, you know, get a get a chowder made for them and then they can add their, their wild found stuff here soon enough. Good deal. Well, Alan, we've been talking about this dish. Um, what else are, have you been working on? I know you mentioned that, you know, you've been heading a lot in field, uh, really kind of just doing a lot of exploring at this point. What are you currently working on right now? That's really catching your eye. What's a project that, uh, is on your plate? Well, I've been collecting a lot of hickory nuts and I was collecting a lot of hazelnuts and I'm trying to order a new hopper cracker for all my acorns and uh, hazelnuts. Uh, the, the hickory nuts have been tough to get up here because I'm kind of right at the north end of their range, but I finally got a good patch on a masting near, you know, so trees don't make their nuts like every single year a lot of them will kind of jump around um, there's a lot of things that probably go into when they have a mast year but i found trees that were masting and i gathered all my nuts and one of my favorite things to do is i dry the nuts and then i'll keep the, the hickory nuts in the freezer after i husk them then i draw them um, and pick them over make sure that all of them look perfect and i float them in water and then take out any that don't float when they're fresh because uh, those get bugs in them. And after they're dried, I freeze them. And it's a really cool thing called hickory nut milk that I learned from Sam Thayer. It's, just, it's a traditional Cherokee technique. Take the nuts and you bash them up and well, you crack them. Crack every single one individually. Make sure that there's no rancid ones or there's no bugs because one can ruin the whole thing. And then put all those cracked nuts in like a little soup pot or before you do that, you bash them up in like a hollowed out tree trunk called a butagen or I use a Vitamix and you put them in a pot, cover them with water, but like twice their volume, bring it to a simmer and then lower the heat, cook it for a little bit, turn the heat off. The shells settle to the bottom of these nuts and shells ground up, you scoop the fresh nut milk off the top. You put that into a pan and add a little bit of maple syrup, a pinch of cinnamon, and you heat it up. And that is a, it's crazy delicious. And an indigenous, genius indigenous technique of getting nutrients. It like it tastes like pecan milk. Like it's so delicious. Uh, but it's really genius indigenous technique that you know allows you to get fat from non-animal source and you don't have to shell and pick any individual nuts to do it whoa because i spent i i've i've got fond memories actually good memories this time of cracking walnuts and then having to use a pick to try and take out all these little itty bitty pieces of the meat on the inside of this nut and to do, be able to do anything with and here you're just blitzing the whole nut here the whole hickory nut is going right there in the vitamix right there in the grinder and the whole thing's getting soaked am i hearing that correctly no they get ground up and and then i put them into a pot and cover them with water by like two times their volume so if you have like a cup of nuts you put like three cups of water in. There is a recipe in my book. Oh, okay. And, Sa gotcha. and Sam Thayer describes it in his book too. You're making nut milk. You're making like rustic 
nut milk. And you cook the nuts and the shells that are all crushed up in water. And it makes a really delicious nut milk that tastes like pecans. Beautiful, beautiful. So with that nut milk, I mean, I could drink it straight as is. Would it be a great add-in for coffee? I guess I should ask if you're a coffee drinker or not. Would that be? I probably. I I mean, maybe it's. It can be. It's supposed to be like a little bit chunky, uh, but you can. But I puree it and do all kinds of things like that. Uh, You know, that's something that I haven't thought of. I would probably strain it if I wanted to do that, uh, or or puree it. I don't know if it would. I don't know how it it would work. Gotcha. Well, I'm gonna get my hand on some hickory nuts. I gotta. I'm, I'm gonna do a little homework here for you. I will. I'll give you my full report on how it works in coffee. How's that sound? Okay. <laughs> and you'll be like, "Oh, good job, good work, Nick. Good work." <laughs> um. Yeah. So you said you were you were, you know simmering that off. Like, describe a dish or describe a. Just once you've pureed it, are you going again? Are you going with that straight, or what are you working that into? Uh, one of my favorite things to make with it is a pot de creme, so it's like a custard. So I'll cook, I'll actually reduce the nut milk to get it really, really strong. And then I'll add some cream to it and a few eggs. And then you will add like maybe a little bit of maple syrup or some shagbark hickory syrup where you take the bark and toast it, make tea, add sugar to the tea, reduce that down to uh, until it hits a certain temperature. And it's kind of like a maple syrup substitute, but not really, but it tastes like smoked hickory. And oh put that into your custard and flavor with it, and then bake it in ramekins in the oven. And that's it's really good in custards and ice cream. Gotcha! Wow, what a what a great trick that to be that that would be that would be good. That sounds like something that's it's right up like it's very technical, but that would be a great challenge for someone to do. I mean, obviously you you're throwing it out there. So, um, my last question here for you, Alan, is we've when you get not many people get this chance to pick the very last meal that they would have uh in a scenario where like yep the next day is is going to be your last day on earth you get to choose your final meal what would be what would be the last thing that you would enjoy eating before you go to the great beyond uh i well that's a great question. I think a pile of morels a la creme. It's a French recipe where you cook the morels like shallots and a splash of brandy and cream, and you eat them like all creamy and juicy on toast. And and you can have truffles on it too, and that's really good. Then I think I'd have a big bowl of buttered nettles and maybe roast chicken with truffles under the skin, chicken demi glue. And then dessert, I'd have my bird cherry cake from my book. It's a cake made out of ground, sifted wild cherries um, that you bake into a cake with the flour. And it tastes like cherries and almonds at the same time. Then it's got this cream cheese frosting I make. flavored and colored with choke cherry juice so it's hot pink wonderful going from appetizer to main course right into dessert well alan that's a great way to send things off um for my listeners who are are tuning in who are really on the edge of their seat where can where can we find more what you're doing how can we uh see your content and then remind us uh the title of your book and where we can find that oh yeah the title of the book is the forager chef's book of flora um my website's foragerchef.com that's where most people know me from uh i'm pretty active on instagram and forager chef and i was just on the show for hulu too that's been um fun to see come out where I'm out in the wilderness. It was made by the people that did alone. And then I have to forage the whole time I'm out there for this, my culinary duel at the end with another chef. 
it's called Chefs versus Wild. That's been fun. But that's where you can see. Perfect. Perfect. Well, Alan, hold on for just a second as I let the listeners on out. Folks, I hope you enjoyed uh, our conversation tonight. Starting out, like, yeah, if you've if you've got Hulu, head over to Chef vs. Wild, and you get to see Alan uh, go to work really foraging and looking for uh, mushrooms and, look, and using edibles, wild edibles, to be able to create amazing dishes. And you see his passion, you see his drive, and then go ahead and head over to his website. It is going to be uh, one of those things that he's really uh, someone that's on point with that. Check that book out as well. That's going to give you a great uh, jump into using stuff that's just around us every day that we just happen to skip over. But folks, as you get into the kitchen and you start to clean up those mushrooms or you start to break down those, uh, those greens that you got, make sure that the knife that you're using is always sharp.